This is Live Well Talk on the new bone clinic at Unity Point Endocrinology, Diabetes Care, and Healthy Living Clinic. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Uh, the new bone clinic will work with patients who have metabolic bone disorders, low bone mass, thinning bone tissue, and people who are at risk for those conditions. Join us today to share more about the clinic is Abby Crow, a nurse practitioner at Unity Point Clinic endocrinology, diabetes care, and healthy living clinic. Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, That's Dr. a big Arnold. title. Unity Point Clinic, endocrinology, diabetes care, and healthy living clinic. Yeah, a lot of different things that are happening there. We have weight loss management, general endocrinology, a lot of diabetic management. But in addition to that, there's a health coaching program and a number of dietitians that work with us, um, diabetic education. I mean, it's a huge center for a lot of the components of healthy living that help improve everyday quality of life. Yeah, we've had Sister LaDonna on and some other experts from over there. But you you are... You, you, you've started this bone clinic, which is kind of code of the doctors we hear osteoporosis, mm-hmm. but, but tell me, tell me the services that you're going to provide. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm board certified from the Bone Health Osteoporosis Foundation in fra- uh, Fracture Liaison Management, which means for individuals that have had low trauma, no trauma fractures, I'm there to help support their recovery. In addition to that, though, I'm board certified in clinical densitometry. So I can interpret and review DEXA scan results with people, discuss the multiple societal guidelines that have to do with the treatment of compromised bone density, and how to reduce risk for fracture in people who are moderate to high risk to very high risk. Now, you know, osteoporosis, um, at one time, you had calcium, vitamin D, and Fosamax. And that's, I've probably exhausted my knowledge of osteoporosis just with that, uh, that uh, trilogy. But Tell me, tell me, what are some of the new ways to treat osteoporosis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Fosamax is definitely the one that everybody thinks of, yeah. right? It's been on the market since like 95, tried and true. The new models really suggest that in the high-risk people looking toward more of the anabolic therapies or the new therapies that have come on the market since the you know 2007 and newer time frame are the right direction to really help rebuild the bone. Fosamax is a fracture risk reduction agent that helps helps to seal and protect the bone, but it doesn't really build bone a lot. And some of the newer technology has really been shown to more aggressively do that. And then still to follow that with the nutritional aspects of things that we we commonly don't think about, right? You know, calcium, vitamin D is pretty straightforward, but protein plays a huge factor, trace minerals, magnesium. Rarely we do see some phosphorus deficiency, especially in our population here where we have, you know, more people of European descent. And so there can be other metabolic factors that come into play. We have people who have high-risk medication usage as part of their regular health maintenance. Oh, yeah. I hadn't, hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Steroids, um, diuretics, uh, yeah, seizure medicines, yeah. absolutely. So there's a number of those very commonly prescribed medications. Um, in addition to that, hormonal medications, Depo-Provera, you know, we know so much more about that than we did a decade ago. Um, you know, uh, the PPI or H2 blockers that people take for GERD, very common, proton 
tonics, um, you know, Pepsid, those types of things, they can also interfere with, you know, bone building. Yeah. The mechanism isn't really well understood, but we know that it certainly interferes with that. But in addition to that, it makes Fosamax pretty much, you know, obsolete. So one in eight people on the Fosamax isn't going to respond to it just because of absorption issues. Yeah. And, and the sitting upright. 100%. percent you know, and But not but, only that, but you can get profound, you know, esophageal problems. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen reflux. a couple of cases yeah. over my career yeah. where they had it esophageal erosions from Fosamax. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's really what the newer agents are, are targeting. They're targeting the people who are not a good candidate for Fosamax, whether they're too high risk or they could potentially benefit from, you know, being able to bypass the GI tract and yeah. able to absorb medication better. Now, you know, one of the concerns of osteoporosis, much like high blood pressure, it becomes a problem most of the time after it's caused some damage, right? Mm -hmm. After you have the compression fracture, after you uh, take a tumble and break a hip, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when, when and how are people screened for osteoporosis? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the task force says, the preventative task force that we use says 65, you know, for women, 70 for men. So that's in people that have absolutely no risk. Anybody who has an associated risk factor, you're, you're small, you uh, have a family history of a hip fracture or any type of major fragility fracture or osteoporosis, you're on a high-risk medication you had early menopause. There's a, a long list of things that would say that we really need to start screening at a younger age. You, One of the big ones that we see is women who have a wrist fracture in their 40s or 50s. That's a huge red flag that there's potential for those more serious fractures down the line. Women can lose on average 2 to 4% bone mass during their menopausal transition annually. Some women, that's as much as 6 to 8%. So there's a huge swing that happens in, you know, late and 40s, what, what, 50s. What percentage of loss is when you start seeing fractures? Mm -hmm. it, there's not a magic number. Okay. Right. To be honest, more women who are in osteopenic criteria will fracture, and that's just due to the sheer number of women who are osteopenic. Well, okay. So you the, know, so, the, yeah. The denominator's mm -hmm. high from that standpoint. Yeah. So those, okay, so I'm a woman and I'm high risk. When should I get screened? Yeah. When you start going through menopausal okay. transition, for sure. If not before then, particularly if you've had periods of estrogen uh, deficiency, if you're small, if your family history is really strong. Um, for our particular insurance programming that we have here at Unity Point, they will cover with no question at the age of 50. Okay. But if a person has gone through menopausal transition in their 40s, they need to start screening then. Okay. All right. So... All right. That's a good. Now, you met, mentioned men, mm -hmm. um, and that was going to be my next question, that it's not just a disease of women. Uh, men get osteoporosis, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the in the eighth decade, osteoporosis really becomes more of, and I don't like this term any more than anyone else, but they call it senile osteoporosis, but it means it's age-related. So when we see osteoporosis in men in their 80s, it's usually related to the fact that they no longer build bone with the same oomph. Women have that effect as well. But for men that have had low testosterone levels, for men who have been on medications or treatments for 
for prostate cancer, for men on high-risk medications, and very commonly in Iowa, for men who have dealt with vitamin D deficiency, right? There can be interruptions in bone building and ability to maintain bone much earlier than age 70. And so Again, if you have those metabolic risk factors, if there's a reason to suspect that you went through a period where testosterone was not the level that it should have been, there's risk there. And often we'll see men even in their 40s that will have low testosterone levels. If untreated for whatever reason, they may already be osteopenic, um, even at a young age where we wouldn't expect that. Do they do, do men do worse than women as far as uh, the compression fracture and um, is it uh, more severe? Is it the same? I mean, yeah. So the the big thing is that the outcomes for men sometimes are worse, particularly as it you know pertains to hip fracture. They don't have a lot in terms of compression fracture data. Obviously, we see a larger number of lumbar compression type fractures typically in women, mm-hmm. but the data from the hip fracture says that men typically have more associated loss of life with hip fracture. When it comes to bone loss, what what are some symptoms of that? What I mean. Unless I discuss with my family doctor, maybe what what would I stop and think about? I might be having symptoms of that. Yeah, absolutely. So the the truth of osteoporosis is is a silent disease until fracture, which is a lot of times why it is hard to intervene early if we're not aware of what our risks are and what the screening criteria are for osteoporosis or potential bone density loss. Um, with a fracture, actually 80%, 75-80% of mef- uh, morphometric spine fractures, right, patients have no symptoms. So it may just be incidentally discovered on a chest x-ray or during a part of another medical workup. The other, you know, 20 to 25% will be clinical fractures. Those people will have pain and often a lot of it that might bring them into their primary care doctor or to the emergency department. Or maybe it's a small fall that shouldn't have resulted in an injury for someone that does, you know, result in breaking a bone. Again, those are those red flag things. For people who are experiencing things like muscle cramps and bone pain and that type of thing, that can be associated with bone loss, but it's almost always due to a secondary cause. It's not generally osteoporosis in the sense that we think of it. Nutritionally, there's something missing. Metabolically, something isn't there, and that's what's resulting in that rapid bone loss. It's equally important to catch that, and so if someone is experiencing those things, it's very important that they get that investigated. I think that your question that you were kind of pulling from earlier is, you know, at what point do we intervene? And that that depends. It's very personalized. And part of what I do in my services is I go through with people what their risk profile looks like. We talk about what their screening tests have shown. Um, Not only do I use bone densitometry, but I actually can pull from past CT scans that they've had done um, from different skeletal sites for something that's called opportunistic CT, which actually gives me a little bit more information about what the actual infrastructure of the bone looks like. So you can go to old CT scan? I can. Yeah, I can. You know, I like to have them within the last couple of years so that the numbers seem to probably be pretty true with where they are. And that's just off like the scout films that Mm -hmm. are... Um, Scout film or if they've had like a CT of the abdomen pelvis, the areas that we generally pull from are like T12 or L1 vertebral body. And basically we're just looking at the, you know, the Hounsfield units, the reflected units there to determine, you know, um, what that measurement is for that average of the region. And if the regional average is below a certain cut point, then it's more suggestive that they have huh. degradation to That's the bone. That's pretty cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Is it, that some yeah. 
It's, you... it's a newer technology yeah. that we've started using just the past few years. Many of the bigger markets are using something called trabecular bone score, um, TBS. This is the most similar thing that we have to that without the additional expense of the technology, but it gives different information than mineral density because mineral density is a great screening tool, but it's only one tool. You right. know, it, it can predict fracture just about as well as blood pressure predicts the risk of um, stroke and slightly better than cholesterol can predict the risk of heart attack. So it's a tool, but it, it's not perfect. So do, do they still do the uh, the spinal uh, injections, the spine, the lumbar plasty or whatever it's called? Kyphoplasty. Kyphoplasty. And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do they still do those? Um, so interventional radiology does them and orthopedic spine does them in certain selected cases. The insurance coverage because for it Because not varies. everyone benefits from it, correct? Yeah, that's correct. For, you know, for people who have persistent pain, um, you know, sometimes there can be, you know, some reduction in pain in terms of duration and severity. Often it is seen as an elective procedure, though, which means that, you know, insurance coverage for it does widely vary. And then there can also be some biomechanical limitations to putting cement in a soft spine. You know, there, right. there's the potential for adjacent, you know, or above or below fractures with subsequent falls. So it, it's a complex decision for people to determine whether or not that's the right thing for them. But they do definitely still offer it through interventional radiology and through orthopedic spine. Because it seemed like at one time it was more, I don't know, if, if popular, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, just. Yeah, they 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 used to jump to it. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, immediately. And now it's really become one of those things that um, we do try to manage people conservatively without, you know, first. So, you know, one time there was a study that they or hypotheses that carbonated beverages led to osteoporosis. Is that true? I've not really seen anything that was super compelling that said that, you know, we can clearly tie any specific. I think the conclusion was that the, yeah. the, the people in the studies were just drinking less milk because they were drinking, you know, pop. Or potentially they're getting less nutrition from right. other other right. sources. Right. I mean, you know, that's really that's really hard to tell. Many of them could have been diabetic as well. And we know that right. diabetes has a huge factor, you know, in bone quality. So there, there's a lot of limitations there. And I don't know that everyone's ever going to do the you know the detailed research right. on that there's a lot of different ways to nutritionally meet your basic needs and that's really what I try to focus on with people we don't have to do it in one specific way it's not my way or the highway I want something that feels sustainable for them and you know being able to review their specific supplements review the foods they like what's working for them what's not allergies and tolerances it becomes very individualized and that's the purpose of you know what we're, the work we're trying Trying to do. We want it to feel like an individualized treatment plan for everybody. You know, one serious question, will sticks and stones break my bones? <laughs> will it, will I it? haven't seen your T-scores. Okay. All right. Just, well, I want to know. Um, what? How, do, how does someone get into your clinic? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, generally by referral. So okay. um, the most common ways that that folks are referred to me are through their primary care doctors, through the hospital medicine team or the emergency department team if they have been seen for a fragility nature fracture. Um, or uh, actually one of my largest referring bodies is OBGYN. Um, many people, uh, women um, do their- Yeah, they use OB, their yeah. primary care as their yeah, OB. Yeah. They, they use their, their OB as their primary care, but also they offer 
offer in-house densitometry services. And so many of the OBs are the ones that are discovering um, the variations as far as, you know, the osteoporosis, you know, treatment potential, you know, need there. There's four basic ways to get to osteoporosis. So one of them is a low trauma or no trauma fracture of the hip or spine. If you fall from standing height and you break your hip, that's osteoporosis, you know, according to the WHO. If you have very low T-scores, you know, those T-scores represent the number of standard deviations of bone that have been lost. If you've lost more than two and a half from a young normal, then you meet the criteria. If you've lost some, let's say you meet the criteria for low bone mass, used to be called osteopenia, but you've had a fragility-related fracture, wrist, the upper arm, perhaps, you know, um, a rib, you know, those also meet the criteria to be elevated to osteoporosis um, treatment. And then finally, you know, if you have somebody who has a high fracture risk, so that's that what we call the FRAX or the 10-year probability calculator. Okay. If we calculate your 10-year probability to be greater than 3% at the hip for a fracture, or 20% for what's called a major osteoporotic fracture, which is, you know, the upper arm, the spine, the hip, so forth, then that also elevates your treatment risk to osteoporosis from the standpoint of, you know, ICD-10 coding. And from a risk standpoint, you need to treat that as though it's osteoporosis. Oh, that's good information there. Why did you choose this uh, to start this up? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a 10-year, 10-plus year now, a background in orthopedics and had worked for the last about five years in neurosurgery where I was taking care of predominantly women, but women and men that had fragility fractures of the spine. Some of them were traumatic, but often they, they were low trauma, no trauma. And um, it really inspired me to learn more about bone health and osteoporosis. Not only how do we protect the woman who's sitting in front of me, how do I protect her daughter that's sitting next to her that's 20 years younger? You know, yeah. what, what can we do to prevent that first fracture? So my background was actually, I was an engineer. I think you maybe knew that about yeah, yeah. me. And I, I studied industrial engineering. So biomechanics have always been interesting to me. There's a lot of living biomechanics in bone. Um, in addition to that, though, so both of my grandmothers had osteoporotic hip fractures, um, one of which died from delayed complications within the year after her surgery, and the other one was never able to be repaired. And so she's uh, still in a nursing home to this day. She never walked again. Hmm. And so I know firsthand, you know, what it feels like to have that not only in my family, but also to to see the potential risks and complications of it. And, you know, for, you know, even one fracture risk reduction, I, I would have done this. 10 times over so it, it, it always amazes me and still does how one person can have a compression fracture and the, the x-ray looks horrible and they're like no it doesn't, doesn't even bother me mm-hmm. and another patient can have some very severe persistent pain to the point of disability mm-hmm. um it, so it's preventing it it's probably the key to uh, treating this disease, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, and it's not just the pain. We think about and we worry about the pain, but, you know, people who have multiple vertebral fractures, they lose up to 10% of their vital lung capacity for every kyphotic fracture they oh, have. Really? I mean, there's Makes huge... Makes sense. Res- I mean, yeah, yeah, I didn't know what, huge- that, what the number was, mm-hmm. but uh, wow. Yeah, there's huge respiratory potential complications there, but, you know, there can be worsening back pain as well with the pastoral things. Um, there's a, a number 
number of factors that can come into play. But yeah, preventing that first fracture is always the goal. But understanding that if someone has suffered a fracture, whether it is hip, spine, wrist, that transforms their relative risk in such a way that it's it's an exponential increase. So if you have one vertebral fracture, you're now mathematically 4.4 times more likely to have a second one. So if we were, you know, estimating your risk correctly before, we're massively underestimating your risk now. Okay. And that's part of what I go through with with folks to try to explain that, you know, unfortunately there are just those people that will fracture even at the same numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some that will just are more likely. And if someone is falling, we're almost always underestimating their risk. And I consider that to be one of the one of the gold standard of things that we have to address because, you know, falls still cause 90% of hip fractures. Yes. The best medications won't make a person bulletproof. Right. So we have to, you know, do everything that we can to avoid falls. Yeah, that's so true. Well, Abby, thanks for joining me. This is really interesting. I learned a lot today. It's been great information. Once again, this was Abby Crow, a nurse practitioner at Union Point Clinic, Endocrinology, Diabetes Care, and Healthy Living Clinic. For more information, visit uniopoint.org. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk on If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.